Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning for WorkinSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. I very rarely listen back to our podcast episodes after I finish creating them. The neurotic side of me can't stop analyzing the way I deliver questions. I'll be walking around with earbuds yelling at myself to stop talking already and let them answer. It's not a good scene, kind of weird looking, not all that healthy. So I tend to not listen once the final production is done and published. But I'll admit, Monday night, I listened back to part one of Stu Grimson's interview, and despite having already listened to it multiple times during production, I was hooked again. So fascinating. I thought the 30 minutes went by really fast, and I wanted to hear more. Stu is a fascinating person to speak with, and I couldn't wait to publish and listen to part two. So I'll take my own advice and stop talking so you can hear part two. Here is 13-year NHL veteran, author of the book Grim Reaper, and chief counsel for thirdhome.com, Stu Grimson. Okay, so tell me this, though. Were former teammates and opponents surprised to learn that you were becoming a lawyer? Or was this like the little locker room secret, like that the, the brawler who could beat the snot out of you was also smarter than you were, too? Like, did other people yeah. know, or was this kind of the secret? No, I don't. I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think here's a kind of a misnomer about a lot of guys that played the role that I played, and and you know we get this response from people outside the game and even our teammates inside the game. Most of us enforcers do. The enforcers you will find almost to a person are some of the most open-minded, some of the most engaging, some of the most gregarious people you'll ever meet. Um, um, and they're often, you know, very, very bright at the same time. Um, so, so you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, the answer to your question is no. I don't think any of my my teammates were surprised that you know I, I went on to to do that because they they would have seen evidence of that in me in some way even back while I was playing. For instance, I was for the majority of my career uh, a delegate to our union. I was a player rep on most of the teams that I played and then even served a term as a vice president on our the NHLPA, the NHL Players Association Executive Committee um, while I was still current in the game. So I, I think a lot of my teammates kind of saw this coming. We need to start <laughs> a, by yeah, we need to start an enforcer's PR agency or something like that so we can get the, we can let everybody know like how how smart you all are and how connected you are all are and that you have your own little uh, your own little players union to, to make sure you're properly re represented no question that's a, that's a great idea <laughs> okay so in the practice of law you deal with leverage all the time right um, was was that something you started to understand and learn about as a player as you kind of assessed and, and evaluated your own value to a team and started to understand how leverage was was advantageous to you Oh, absolutely. No question about it. I think one of the greatest lessons, and again, this is one I document uh, in the book, one of my greatest lessons, I think, came as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes. I had been in the organization for two years. Things were going quite well for me. I was playing a lot under head coach Paul Maurice. I was picking up some points and, um, you know, it was just a really, uh, it was a great fit for me 
all in all. We had great, I had great teammates. Uh, we, we really loved the city of Raleigh, the area of North Carolina where we were living. And it was just a terrific fit on the ice, both a playing and a leadership role. And I thought, oh, I'm in the middle of a, a long-term deal. This long-term deal based on, you know, the other people, the other players in the league who I'm comparable to, it's becoming a little bit obsolete. I feel like I'm worth more. And I got a piece of advice from my agent who said, you know what, I, I think you should ask your, we should ask your general manager, Jim Rutherford, to renegotiate the deal. You're worth more than what you're making today. It took me a while, uh, a few months to kind of come around to that way of thinking. But once I got there, I said, that's it. And I talked about it with my ex-wife. And I said, I think we need to kind of take this position. Now, as we do this, we kind of say, need to say, hey, general manager, Jim Rutherford, uh, hey, I really need you to redo my deal. Or uh, if you're unwilling to do that, I'm going to have to ask you to trade me. So I took that position. I kind of drew that line in the sand. And ultimately, uh, Jimmy was fantastic with me. He worked through it rather graciously with me you know he was very professional about the whole thing but it ultimately came down to hey Stu, sorry we just can't do that that's a policy we don't have frankly had i picked my head up off the pages and looked around i would have realized that's a policy really nobody in my position or a position nobody in in my with you know in my situation should have taken and i ultimately was traded i moved on um, went on to you know enjoy the rest of my career without question. Um, it was it was largely upside from that point on, but nobody looked at renegotiating my deal after that point. So my I think the lesson I really learned was Brian, you know Carolina was a great fit for me. I probably could have gone on to play out the rest of that deal, gone on to a, a really nice contract thereafter. But what I realize now, because I left, and I don't know that leaving was necessarily the best, the best outcome for me, I probably overplayed my hand. Had I been patient, played out the rest of that deal, I think things would have worked out fine. And I ended up putting my family, myself and my family through a move that I really didn't need to. Um, and I, I didn't gain much at the end of the day, I guess is the point that I'm really trying to make. So the point I learned is one that I, I, I referenced earlier. I overplayed my hand. And I, I, I think I've learned that lesson um, and I've been able to apply it in other contexts since leaving the game. And again, that's one of those notions that has really come back to me through readers of the book. And they've, you know, they've kind of said to in a different way, in a different set of circumstances, that's been an important lesson for me also. I've been able to apply that to something I'm going through personally and professionally here in a different corner of the world. That's so fascinating. Um, I, I, I was listening in on your your answer to the education question earlier, and you talked about growing up the way you did, and you talked about your background. And one thing it just kept ringing in my head was your your work ethic has to be, I mean, elite level from making it in the NHL to becoming a lawyer. I mean, you break every rule of, of probability. Uh, is that something that you are born with, or do you think people can develop a stronger work ethic as they go through life? 
Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. It's the nature or is it the nurture? Exactly. And I'll tell you what, there, there's an interesting turn. I hope I don't give away the this part of the book that you're about to stumble upon <laughs> because I I go through this. Uh, believe it or not, um, I you know I am uh, I'm a, I'm adopted. I've had a chance to meet my biological father, and the path that he and I have taken is eerily dissimilar in spite of the fact that at my birth we essentially um you know traveled in two different two very different um walks of life um so i don't want to give too much away for anybody that picks up the book and then certainly for you as you're kind of reading through it yeah but um i think my you know my my nature my biology is is very much a part of who I have become without question. But at the same time, and I mentioned this in an earlier context in our conversation, I learned a lot from two and learned a lot growing up in the household of two parents, my mom, my dad, who both had grown up on uh, on farms in Western Canada through their early childhood and into their early adulthood. Um, I learned a lot from them. Stan and M. Grimson, you know, we moved around a lot. I was a cop's kid growing up. Uh, that's what my father did for, for his vocation. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I just, we, we did for ourselves. And uh, they instilled in me a great work, work ethic. That, too, has opened up a lot of doors for me without question. So, you know, I, I think the short answer, now that you've got all the background, is it's both it's both nurture and it's nature for yeah. me. Um, I think I was probably destined uh, by my genes to, to kind of go on to, to have a pretty hardy work ethic. But uh, even if that weren't the case, uh, my mom and dad were going to instill in me a work ethic one way or another. <laughs> Personally, I like that answer better. I like thinking that there is a combination of both things, that you have some control over things and some that's gifted to you from your, you know, right your parents. I like, right I like to believe that. Um, so your side gig, beyond being the chief counsel for Third Home and, a, and an author, a published author, I'm, I'm assuming a bestseller. If not, you should be. Um, you're also a senior analyst for NHL Network. Uh, this role as an analyst is a is a logical step for a lot of ex players. A lot of ex players get into the you know broadcasting or or team analysis or whatever it may be. But it doesn't sound like this was really part of your plan, or was it? Was this something that you looked at and said, "I want to I want to do this," or did this come come up by circumstance? Yeah, great question. It was not part of the plan, not even close. I actually left the game going broadcasting is not for me. I just, I don't know that I have the same passion for the game um, or the same, you know, kind of desire to do that. I saw myself as I left the game going on to work more on the business side, perhaps the club side or the, 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 the labor union side of, of the industry, the sport. And I actually, I tell people all the time, I kind of backed into this, this broadcasting piece. When I came back to, to Nashville, um, retired from the game and went on to work for a law firm here in town, the predators kind of approached me one day and said, Hey Stu, in addition to kind of, you know, your law practice, would you consider being our color guy on the radio broadcast? Um, you don't have to travel. We'll just have you work the home games. You know, it'll be two or three nights a week uh, when the team's in town during the year. So it's not a real big time commitment. Right. And I agreed. And, um, you know, lo and behold, 
I enjoy that more than I thought I ever would. And about two years went by as I'm kind of doing this part time, just jumping on the air, you know, providing a little color commentary on the radio broadcast. And the Predators came forward and they offered me the television, the, the head the head job as the color analyst on their television broadcast. Wow. And I accepted because I had enjoyed the radio side so much. And I really, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was a great opportunity. It has since evolved for me to a place where I can do both. I, uh, I, I left the practice of law for several years while I pursued the, the color analyst job as a part of the Predators broadcast team. But it's evolved for me over time. I've kind of, I'm straddling kind of both sides of the fence today. As you mentioned, I work as an NHL an, an analyst on NHL Network. We go, I go up to Jersey a couple of times a month when hockey is up and running uh, under normal circumstances, and right. I work uh, as a studio analyst for a national network called NHL Network. And then, too, when I'm back here in Nashville, I'm uh, I'm full time with with Third Home as part of uh, as the legal team here, um, and a very exciting company that kind of works squarely in the travel industry. So I, I feel like I'm in a really great position. I kind of get to do both, which I really love. I get one foot on the hockey side of the fence and I've got one foot in the, in the legal realm as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to do both. I think it's really, a, I've struck a great balance for somebody in my position. Yeah, I can see why that would be a, a perfect way to, you know, put together your post-playing days career. As a as a broadcaster and in that analyst role, is it is it hard to be critical of players when you know just how difficult it is out there and to make those split-second decisions and to, to do the right thing or whatever it may be? Is that is that kind of a hard adjustment to get used to where you have to be, you know, somewhat critical? It is. It really is. And I, I think, you know, what you learn because your integrity as a broadcaster really kind of hangs in the balance because people that know our game know when a player on the ice misread a situation or made a bad decision in a situation. And for you to soft sell that right. or for you to or take, take a, a different point of view, it kind of undermines, you know, the trust they have in you or the credibility that they have in you. So the point I'm making is you kind of need to call it out when you see it happen. But there's a tactful, there's a even a positive way to do that and 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 not kind of you know hang a player, the player that committed that that error or committed made that bad decision. There's a way to kind of call that out and do it in a, a somewhat uh, gracious way and maybe even you know offer, hey, here's probably what this player was internalizing at the time. Um, and still kind of get your point across. So, so that's something that you learn to do over time, but it's not something that comes to everybody readily your first, you know, your first little while uh, working in that, that color analyst seat. And uh, it is one of the great challenges of the job. I appreciate you bringing that up. It's, it's kind of a delicate balance that one needs to walk in this position. It is, but I think you're so spot on that if you if you water it down or you don't have a strong opinion or you don't point out the obvious things the fan might even recognize, then you do. You lose credibility with the audience. So you really okay. do have to walk that fine line of understanding but also giving the perspective to the audience. 
Oh, absolutely. And listen, everybody's got their own broadcast today. If if you don't call it out, they'll call you out on Twitter. Exactly. So we, we know we're going to be held accountable. Yeah. Is it, do you get to watch the game now? Just at, like sitting back as a fan, is it a totally different experience for you? Like, do you get to just admire players and do you get to kind of see the game a little bit differently? I do. I really do. I'm fond of telling people that all the time. And and really, let's harken back to the, you know, the remarks I was making earlier in our conversation, Brian. The game for me, when I played it, I mean, I loved the lifestyle. I loved my teammates. But there was an aspect of it that was really, really demanding for me, emotionally, mentally challenging for me. So when I could, I like to escape from the game, not watch the game mm-hmm. so that I could kind of get a vacation, a, a mental holiday from it. But now that I, I'm removed from the game and I don't have somebody my size looking to take my head off my shoulders every <laughs> night, I get a chance to really enjoy the game, watch it and analyze it and and be a fan from time to time and really appreciate how great our game is. I continue to believe that certainly in person, for anybody that doesn't know our game, you walk inside an NHL arena and watch NHL hockey played, there is no more exciting a sport, team sport, in, in all of our society today. I really feel that way about our game. So I'm more a fan than I ever have been today. And, and I love that about this stage in my life. I'll go you one better. I probably, as much as I enjoyed my playing career, I probably enjoy my connection to the game today and my life in and around the game today more than I ever did back when I was a player. I think I've just come to appreciate it and my connection to it more than than even an earlier time uh, in, in my life around NHL hockey. Okay, so this is a weird question, and I'm totally acknowledging that this is a strange question, but you have to bear with me here. I have this really strange curiosity about friendships and relationships and how they all develop. Like, I'll watch a movie, and I'll and I'll wonder if, like, the two people, the two leads will end up, like, I wonder if they're friends, like, off screen. Like, did they, 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 they seem to have so much chemistry. Like, I wonder, like, did they become friends? Did they hang out? Do they go do things together? Like, how does this work? And so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself that, and I know this is weird, but it makes me wonder, like, are the majority of bonds that you've formed in your playing career and it, your identity as the Grim Reaper, are they with teammates that you sat in the locker room and hung out with? Or is this almost like a bond between you and those people that you had to face off with and filled that enforcer role with other teams? Like, is, is there somewhat of a honor amongst thieves in a way? And do you have those kind of relationships as well? Oh, there, there is without question. I, I think the uh, the fraternity of guys, and and especially if you if you look at the role of enforcer today, because it's almost non-existent. There really aren't any players like us in the game today. You go back to my era of the game. Every, really, each and every team had at least one, sometimes two guys that fulfilled my role. So, you know, as odd as it may seem, one, there's a little bit of nostalgia around that role, but each of us having locked horns with one another, we understand what the other person is going through. We have an an admiration, a mutual respect for the other person. And the odd part about it is there's almost this built-in sense of rapport. Like, I know what Bob Probert has been through, therefore Bob Probert and I, or Dave Brown and I, outside the context of the NHL arena when we're competitors, 
we have this this admiration, this 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 respect for one another, and it it ends up being the basis for a really strong bond. My most of my best friends in the game today, the guys that I have regular contact with, are guys like Jimmy McKenzie and Kelly Chase, guys that you know we used to lock horns regularly with one another but you know we just we've kind of been through the grinder together and you know as as antagonists as nemeses of one another and now we come out the other side of it and it's kind of we no longer have to do that and it totally diffuses you know the relationship or the 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 obstacles to any relationship with we that we have we're we're great friends today we really are Ah, it's so fascinating. Stu, I think I could ask you questions all day, but since you have other jobs and other responsibilities, we're going to have to wrap this up. But I do want to finish up with this. We have a lot of student athletes in our audience, people who dream of being a pro. They see their future in that direction. As, as you look back at your 20 to 25 year old self, you know, when you were in that phase of that aspiring student athlete wanting to reach to the NHL, get to that point. What advice would you give that version of yourself or any of those people in our audience that have that same dream that that could be helpful to them to help guide them a little bit? Those principles that you look back on now and say, if I had only done X or if I had come at it from this direction, what what are your thoughts as far as student athletes and aspiring people yeah. in pro? That's 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 a great question. I, I think I probably have. Uh, maybe two lessons that I've learned over time. And one is really, it's a, it's a practical, it's a, it's a thing any athlete I think can kind of drop in his toolbox and, and bring it out each and every day. And the second is more almost a, a mindset. Let me start with the first. And that is, I, I, I found, and I don't think I did this as well as certain other pros or certain other athletes that I came to know over time. But each and every day, and I mean practice day, training day, or or another episode of competition, each and every day brings an opportunity for you to find an edge, be it in your fitness, your personal fitness, be it in a specific skill that you're trying to master, each and every day presents an opportunity to develop an edge over your competition. Don't miss that that opportunity to refine that edge or to develop that edge to give yourself an advantage over your opponent and you know if if you're an athlete and you're you're struggling to improve in some area hearing me say that it'll probably conjure up in your mind a skill or maybe it's just your level of fitness or something like that i'll tell you i played with people like Paul Korea over the course of my career. Um, There are, there are many, many different examples that I could point to, but Paul Korea probably serves as the, the best example. He was, Paul was hard to talk to. Paul was, he was, he was almost impenetrable. Certainly on a game day, he was so singularly focused on making himself better as an athlete each and every day. Um, if I had adopted even a small modicum of, of the way Paul approached his, um, his training days, his practice days, his game days, I, I think it would have made a 30% difference in terms of who I was as yeah. an athlete. So w- develop an edge. Look for, look for an opportunity every day to develop an edge. And then number two, and I think Paul probably helped inform this viewpoint as well, but I think I learned this lesson myself. Um, 
we have these rises and falls as athletes and and you know in victory revel in the victory feel good about the victory but don't forget to stay humble too try to find a way to balance out the rises and the falls you don't need to be terribly hard on yourself when you stumble um fall forward we've had this discussion already in our conversation yeah pick yourself up by the bootstraps and kind of and fall forward but when you have those victories just remember, you know, there isn't that much distance from your last uh, defeat and stay humble and all that. Because I have found if you let pride get in the way of, um, you know, perhaps the way you process a victory or you allow yourself to get too full of yourself, you may find your next defeat uh, comes with a little more sting on it. Um, so just keep your humility in check. Keep your keep your your level of confidence in check at the end of the day don't be afraid to apply a good dose of humility in you know kind of in each and every moment you walk through that uh, that path we all take through through our athletics Stu I just can't even begin to thank you enough I mean the the vulnerability and insight and stories and background and everything that you gave to this interview is just it's so moving to me and I know it will change the lives of a lot of the people in our audience that listen and it, you go into even greater depth into a lot of these stories in your book the Grim Reaper and I love the fact that when I first reached out to you and I, I referred to you as the Grim Reaper you referred to yourself now as the Grim Reader which I loved I thought that was a great little <laughs> twist of phrase that you you just made me smile and you've made me smile a lot during this interview so i just wanted to say thank you and and i really appreciate you coming on the show brian this has been a really uh terrific and a really thoughtful conversation and i thank you i you know it, it takes uh it takes somebody to point us in the right direction and you've done a terrific job of that i i do a lot of podcasts now that podcasts are as popular as they are uh this really is one of the most uh, natural and I, I think enlightening conversations that that i've been a part of you're you're largely to thanks for that you run a good show my friend thank you Stu. i really appreciate it it's funny when i schedule interviews i don't always do a pre-interview in the media business we used to pre-interview people all the time where you talk to them beforehand Get them kind of set up for what it was going to be like. Run through some questions. See what their reaction is. You get a vibe for their personality, what they want to talk about, what they don't want to talk about. I don't do that every time because sometimes I like that raw feeling of the conversation. With Stu, he and I did talk prior to this interview and it just really refined. I walked into that pre-interview with about nine to ten questions I wanted to ask. I came out of it with about 20 and that's where we got to this point of doing it over two episodes because there was such so much that I want to talk about, so much that Stu could lend his credibility to and his interest to and his vulnerability to. And he was willing to go into any conversation. If I said, you, are you comfortable talking about mental health in NHL? Yeah, I definitely am. Are you comfortable talking about your relationship with old enforcers? Yes, definitely. Do you have any advice you want to share with student athletes? For sure I do. Like his attitude was just so open and willing that I couldn't get enough of it. And uh, I hope there's a part three 
in for in the future because I don't know, maybe it's just me, but in answering my own question, if you guys wonder if like I do, like do people become friends after they have moments like this or like in a movie together or they fight or whatever it may be, like I kind of, I don't know, I kind of felt like Stu and I hit it off. Like I want to be his friend. I want to go to Nashville and have a beer with him. Uh, So hopefully that happens. And thank you for listening to both parts. If you didn't listen to part one, go back and listen to it because it's fascinating. I hope you enjoyed part two. And thank you for being a part of our audience. It means the the world to me. It really does. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff wherever you listen. It helps us build the show and make it bigger and better for everyone listening. Do me a favor. Wear a mask when you're out in public. We need to we need to take control back of this thing, this coronavirus. It's a it's a deadly beast, and we want to do something about it. And if the only sacrifice you have to make is wearing a mask when you're in public, I think we can all do that without making a big deal about it. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will be back soon.